Welcome to Hillside Community Church's weekly podcast. We're glad that you've chosen to listen to this week's message and hope that it ministers to you today. Hillside's located in Keller, Texas, and if you would like to know more about us or to listen to previous recordings, please visit us at yourhillside.com. And now, this week's message. Crystal. I had to do it. I couldn't help. Just had to do it. So this series we're in, hopefully, is bringing clarity to our faith, whether we are seeking God or whether we, you know, we've come to know God, but our faith is a little fuzzy or getting fuzzy, dimming. And perhaps even to the point where we're not sure what to believe, because culture can sort of take, take your mind over and make you unsure of things. So we looked, first of all, at the gospel, the core of Christianity, uh, and we saw what Christ has done for us, the good news of what Christ has done for us, and then we looked at spirituality, because out of the gospel comes an inner transformation where we live our lives to please him. We saw that last week. So we've sort of seen Jesus through the lens of both of those things, and today we're going to look, well, we're going to look straight at him. Because he's the center of it all. And so if, there's, if, if, you, if you're going to have clarity, you're going to have to assess where you are in your understanding of Christ. Because everything depends. There's no gospel. There's no spirituality. Everything depends on him. So if you're going to be crystal clear, you're going to have to be crystal clear about Jesus's. Now, there's a warning with that. Uh, Because when you discover who Jesus really is, it really changes everything about your life. You can't go on business as usual. Um, During the eclipse, a number of people were sort of made fun of for looking up directly into the sky without any sort of eye protection. (laughs) And maybe you tried. You know, it doesn't, it's not, it's not really that, it's not really possible. Um, And of course, we all know that if you look up there without the glasses, you're you could go blind. I mean, it's damaging to your eyes. Well, you look at Jesus, and just the opposite happens. It's eye-opening. Eye-opening. But everything else that you have been looking at changes. The view of everything else changes when you get a clear vision of him. So, that's what we're going to do today in what I think is probably... As clear a picture of who Jesus is uh, as you're going to get in the New Testament. This may be the most beautiful, the most unique, and uh, and it's actually sort of hymn-like. And there's de- debate as to whether Paul copied it from a from a hymn or if he sort of wrote to him himself. Either way, it's hymn-like. Uh, 
and I wanted you to see this, this whole passage together that we're going to look at in two parts this week and next week. But I want you to see what it is, and this is uh, sort of a, a straight-on view of who, who Jesus is in its most comprehensive form you can get in the New Testament. Who is, so you want, I want, what I want you to notice is that the hymn is divided up into two parts with sort of a middle piece that's a transition. So he, who is, is coming out of who the son is. We're in the kingdom of his beloved son in whom we have redemption and forgiveness. Who is the image of the invisible God. He is the, here's what it says at the top, the firstborn of all creation in the heavens and the earth. Who is the firstborn from the dead, again, heaven, earth. So what you have is this little hymn, these verses, you've got a very comprehensive view of who Jesus is, heaven and earth. It's divided into two parts. This is creation, this is redemption. He is, so you see it's universality. As it relates to creation, everything on heaven and earth are from him. As it relates to redemption, everything on heaven and earth are from him. And he is the preeminent one in both. That's what it means to be firstborn, preeminent. All right? So that's a picture of the text itself. This forms the trans, sort of a transition as we'll look at as we, as we go. Uh, a little boy in Sunday school asked the question, if Jesus came back today, would he be able to understand computers? That's a very cute question. It's the kind of thing you say that little boy's trying to figure something out. He goes, you know, we, this is a different world than the one Jesus grew up in. All right, clearly the boy can see that. Uh, but behind that is the wonder, maybe even the fear Maybe Jesus would be a little lost in our world. I mean, he doesn't know what it's like to, to be engaged. In, and, uh, you know, in our culture, I mean, you've got to live together for a little while. I mean, you, you just look at reality and you go, Jesus, you're just a little behind the times. And maybe you'd be overwhelmed in our culture. And if you feel that way, then it's very possible. I mean, it, well, it's likely you don't have clarity about reality and about who he is. So you're going to have to, I think, I think you ought to just sit back and enjoy a little theological speak, just some theological speak, because there are times when you have to look straight at Jesus. You cannot have one eye on him or your head turned just a little. You just got to look right at him. And that's going to require a lot of thought. And so we're going to look right at him because that's what Paul does. And we're going to start right here in verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn of all creation. So you've already got sort of a, a problem issue. You've got a God who's invisible. So how, how do you get clarity? How do you see clearly a God you can't see? raises sort of an issue. Well, there's an image of him. He is the image of the invisible God. If you're going to see God clearly, you are going to have 
to understand Jesus. All right? Everything depends on that. doesn't matter what you, what you understand about anything. All philosophy, all religion, they're all answering the question, who is God? And Paul is saying, there's only one way to know. There's only one way to see it. He's been revealed. And in Greek thought, when you said the word image, you weren't looking at a sort of a facsimile. Uh, you, it was, no, this is what it really is. No, that's who it really is. You speak of it as uh, the reality. He shares the reality of who God is. So when you say he's the image of God, he represents God. He's like God. He is the exact representation of God. So in Christ, God comes into view. And that's why Paul will say in verse 19, he's the fullness of God. Everything God is, is in Christ. Christ is fully God, and God is fully in Christ. That's the idea. That's what God is. Jesus is what God is, and nothing less. Now, uh, here's some verses that we ought to look straight at as well. Just think of them. John 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Same picture. The Word we're going to see The Word became flesh. Who's that? That's Christ. And dwelt among us, and we saw his glory. What did we see? We saw the glory of the begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. And then verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. That's Christ. Christ has explained him. Can't see God. Christ is the one who explains him. And then you have in Hebrews, 3, Hebrews 1, you've got to know this verse too. And he is the radiance of his glory. Speaking of Jesus, he is the radiance of his glory and the exact representation of his nature, and he upholds all things by the word of his power. He's the exact representation of God. So he is the image of God. So you, you know, just so you understand, you know, the... Uh, as it relates to Christianity, what a cult is. You go wrong here somewhere. You go awry here. So the Mormons, they're, they're God makers. We all started out the same spirits, Jesus too. We were all the same in the spiritual world. Then we come into being, and then slowly but surely, we become gods. That's what they say Jesus did. So Jesus doesn't start out as God, he becomes God. That's the complete opposite of what Paul is saying. You see that? That's that's why, in relation to Christianity, why we would call them a cult. You go wrong on Jesus, or you go awry from the New Testament on Jesus. Well, let me just tell you, your whole view of sin, your whole view of humanity, your whole view of salvation changes. You end up having to be a universalist. So it falls apart, and the Jehovah's Witness are similarly the same. They just believe Jesus was created. He is, he is, he is not God as God is. And they, they sort of get, they don't believe in the Trinity. So the, the Spirit of God is just a force in which God acts. So they don't, so the, the, the Trinity crumbles, and so does. But the moment you do that, 
the moment you change the view of all reality. And so Paul is giving you a very high view of reality here. And then he says, not only is he the image of the invisible God, he's the firstborn of all creation. The firstborn means preeminent. Now, if you take firstborn to mean he was created, he was the first thing created, you're going to go awry here. You say, how do you know what firstborn means? Well, firstborn can mean two things. It can mean the first thing created, or it can mean the preeminent one, the one over creation. And that's what it means here. And the context makes that clear, and I want to show you. First of all, what is already said here explains that, but what comes after is going to explain that. So what he means is the preeminent one over creation. This is what he's saying. He is above and beyond all things. So what Paul is doing with that verse right here is distinguishing Jesus from creation. He's distinguishing him from it as above it and beyond it, a reality outside the physical material universe. He's outside it and he's beyond it. Now, let's look at verse 16. For by him, this is how we know what firstborn means. How do you know what firstborn means? By him, all things were created. He wasn't created. He created all things, do you see? Both in the heavens and on earth. So this is universal. Visible and invisible. Thrones, dominions, rulers, or authorities. So it's not just things, but powers. Whatever shape they take, earthly or heavenly powers, nothing's over him. There's no need to seek any other authority, any other power. There's no need to seek it. He's over it. Okay? All things, here it is repeated again. He says the same thing here that he says here. All things were created through him and for him. Now I want you to notice, uh, first of all, God... In Christ, there is action. Uh, in Christ, there is authority over everything. No matter how you understand Genesis 1 and 2. Well, we all, well, I don't know. Right here. All things were created by him. Through him and for him. Here's your three key prepositions right here. This one, this one, and this one. By him, through him, and for him. Very important. Uh, because these same three prepositions will be used in the, in the second half of the hymn that describe redemption. But creation and redemption are all through Christ. He is the central piece of all reality. So what it's saying is here is, this, this is by, but this, the preposition here is better translated in, in him. So here is sort of a sphere. Everything was created in him. In other words, you almost see him as the location that everything was created in. That's what Paul's saying. And then you have through him, this is the means, this is the instrument. Not only was it created, sort of, was he the location for it, but he was the impetus of the creation. And then you have for him, 
It was all, he is the goal of all of creation. He, so he's sort of the beginning, the middle, and the end all at the same time. I mean, he's the, he's the center of reality. That's a comprehensive vision. He stands at the beginning, and he stands at the end as the goal of all of the universe. So there is no part of creation that's not about him. It's very tight. These three prepositions make this very, very tight picture. And a tight reality, Christ's rest. It's not a capricious reality. It's not fluky chance. Um... One of the commentators I, I was reading said this, scientists today describe the beginning of our universe as a big bang in which the cosmos exploded in a blind scatter of inanimate lumps. And many accept on faith, and by the way, you gotta accept that on faith because it can't be proven. That life arose from an unsupervised, impersonal, unpredictable, and natural process of ordinary chemistry and physics, which coincidentally happened to possess the appropriate conditions. Some, some scientists who claim to have cracked part of the cosmic code attribute the advent of humans to the complex outcome of chance mutations. But even those who forcefully argue for such a view must continually remind themselves not to be fooled by any evidence to the contrary. And Francis Crick is one of those. In 1953, he and one other guy discovered the structure of DNA. And he wrote a book called The Mad Pursuit because they were in mad pursuit of figuring that out. Uh, and he writes this. He admits this. Biologists must constantly keep in mind that what they see is not designed, but rather evolved. That's exactly what they got to constantly look away from the obvious And I love that. I loved it. Um, let's see here. Got a lot. We could read a lot as it relates to that. There's a great article in the New York Times I read this weekend. Uh, it was on Saturday uh, by Henry Fountain. It's called Apocalyptic Thoughts Amid Nature's Chaos. That's a question. Having apocalyptic thoughts amid nature's chaos? A lot of people are these days. He says, You could be forgiven. You could be forgiven for having them right now. There's so much going on in the world. We got nuclear issues. We got earthquakes. We've got. But then in the article, he goes, Well, but science can explain all of them. We've always had a madman on the scene. Uh, we, we, we have at least one massive earthquake every year. We have hurricanes this time of year. Science can explain all of these things. Is what, and he says, The eclipse. So then, then you throw the eclipse in and you're like, ooh. And he goes, well, they're natural too. Science can explain those too. But then he makes this line, and I think it's really important. He goes, clearly for a lot of people, science is not enough when the stakes seem so high. And I just think that's a great statement he made. So we're seeing who Christ is. It's just tight through him. He's everything. And then he is, here's the summary verse. Here's sort of the summary that sets up the next passage and this one. He is before all things. There's the all things again. We've got a universal picture. And in him, 
in him, that would take, that would encompass all three of the prepositions used before, in him, through him, and for him. In him, all these things hold together. Great word. Just a great word. So what is, what is Paul saying here in sort of summary? He is before all things. He's preexistent. And so he takes precedent over all things in terms of time and status. Uh, he, it, it makes him eternal outside of reality. As one writer said, no matter how far you go back, he's there. All right? And then in him, all things hold together. And this is a great word to study. Uh, but it's essentially saying the world is not self-sufficient. Uh, that there is a force that keeps things together. As Garland wrote, he is, Jesus is the divine glue and the spiritual gravity of the universe. And we said earlier in this series that he's the theory of everything. And, uh, you know, and seven years ago, almost to the day, uh, Stephen Hawking came out with his book, The Grand Design, and, uh, and he came out and announced clearly... Um, he announced that God, uh, he ended the debate according to him, that God did not create the universe. That's what he said in his book. Uh, and I read an article on it uh, when he came out with that. This was in September of 2010. And he says in The Grand Divine that our universe followed inevitable, inevitably from or followed inevitably from the laws of nature, to which the writer asked, well, where did the laws of nature come from? Which you got to ask, which I think is a great question. And so here's this writer who actually believes what Hawking says, because Hawking says, we have found the answer to everything, and it's the M theory. So he calls it the M theory. Hawking's view appears to be that the belief in a God-created universe can be supplanted by a belief in M theory. God or M theory? A good candidate for a fundamental theory of nature at its finest level. Experts assure us of the potential of this theory, and I, for one, am quite prepared to believe them, the writer says. But then he says this. But, but there is a problem with the theory. Because, uh, and the problem is, is it's extremely difficult to test. <laughs> I love that. I was like, yeah, so you're going by faith on it. It's a theory. And then he says, unless physicists can build a particle accelerator the size of the galaxy, and if they can't do that, even if the experiments, experimenters could find a way around this, and in theory would pass all their tests, the reasons for the mathematical order at the heart of the universe's order would still remain an unsolved mystery. We still couldn't explain it. So here's Paul saying, here it is. He's before all things. He's over all things. In him, all things hold together. Christ is more than the force that preserves the orderly arrangement of the cosmos. Hear this, Garland says. Christ is more than the force that uh, preserves the orderly arrangement of the cosmos. He is its rationale and its rhyme and its reason. In him, through him, and for him. 
Another commentator, and it's fun to read the commentators on this, on this particular word. He says, what holds the universe, Mu, says what holds the universe together is not an idea. It's not a virtue. It's a person. Without him, electrons would not continue to circle nuclei. Gravity would cease to work, and the planets would not stay in their orbits. One of the great things to do if you love uh, uh, microbiology, if you like physics, is to look at the, just the small thing, smallest things going on in the world, and scientists are amazed at what's happening at the smallest particles and elements of the universe, what make up the universe, because they, they, they adhere to no laws. They're like, they're like 14-year-olds. They adhere to no laws. They're just running around doing their own thing. You wake up tomorrow, you don't know what they're going to be wearing, you don't know what they're going to be doing or thinking. Or, you don't know. You don't know what they're going to be doing. They don't obey any laws. And, and when they look at it all, they're just like, in fact, they have so much power and energy that, it's, that we can't explain, except for what they call strong nuclear force, why they don't just completely fly apart and disintegrate. And here's Paul saying, well, I know the answer to that. So Wink writes, this passage gives the principle uniting the universe a heart, a purpose, and a face. There's a face behind the one who holds all things together. Now, you say, what does this mean? Uh, there's a lot that could be said, and I've really struggled with how many things that this could mean. I only want to say one as we sit here and think about it. First of all, you've got to look straight at him, and you've got to see who he is. I mean, he's not just a great teacher. We all figure that out, right? Not just a great moral teacher. And he is the interpretive key to the entire universe, and so let's just apply it very, very, very simply before we take the Lord's, ta- Lord's Supper. If he's Lord over all creation, if he's Lord over all creation, then he also must be Lord over every aspect of my life. Can we say that? What part of your life wouldn't fall in there? Okay, he must be to my life what he is to all reality, supreme. My life must be in him, through him, and for him. You see that? My life must be in him, through him, and for him. Anything less, and it'll disintegrate, because it's not reality. Okay? So Paul's essentially saying, (laughs) life's ultimately works only one way. Life ultimately only works one way if he's the beginning, the middle, and the end. I heard Tim Keller uh, say this one done. You can't know the supreme one if anything else is supreme. You can't know the supreme one if anything else is supreme. And Paul is using, in this text, the language of ultimacy, all or nothing. In other words, Jesus cannot possibly just be a part of your life. He can't be a supplement to your life. You can't add him to your life to sort of round out your life. Well, I got this, I got this, like a, like a vitamin supplement. Well, I don't get enough sun, so I need some vitamin D. 
and you get your, you know, 500 milligrams of Jesus. And you add them to the sun you're already getting. That's not how it works. This is why everything else has to change. (laughs) Because you can't know the absolute. Here's it. You can't know the absolute if you absolutize anything else. Everything else you must relativize. You say, well, how do I know if I'm doing that? Well, there's some, langu- there, there, there's some language that you could use that we use for ultimacy. If you say, I have to have that, then you've absolutized something. I have to have that. I need Jesus, but I have to have that. So if you say, I have to have that, and it doesn't matter what it is, and it's something he wouldn't want you to have, then you've just absolutized something above him. You've just made something supreme above him. That's what we're saying. That, I have to have that, is the language of ultimacy. So, very simple. You can ask yourself that question. Right now, what am I wrestling with? What do I have to have? Where is he not first? Because you can, I can tell you right now, as soon as you start to switch the components of reality and you take what is supreme and you move it down, you relativize Jesus. There's no way it can sustain itself. It's not sustainable. It's not reality. It'll ultimately disintegrate if he's not first. That could be a view. It could be a conviction. It could be an idea. It could be a relationship. It could be morality. It could be anything. What do you have to have? I want Jesus, but I have to have this too. So, here is what we get to look at next week, and I just want to say this before we take communion. Our, our, our band's going to come out now uh, as we look at this, but I just want you to see something here. When you look at the whole picture, because in this next picture of redemption, you're going to see this phrase here, and we've got we to tease this out. He is the firstborn from among the dead. <laughs> You're like, okay, wait a minute. You just described him as the eternal God. You just described him as the fullness of God. You just described him as the preeminent one, creator and sustainer and goal of the universe, the interpretive key to all of reality. How does he end up dead? How do you kill that? That's how the story of redemption begins. That's the story of redemption because this incredible cosmos that he's created has fallen into sin. And what you realize is that behind that cosmic story is a God who loves human beings. Behind that cosmic story is a God who loves human beings. And, uh, and behind that is, an, is a love story of epic proportions. And when we partake of him, as we are now about to in communion, when you partake of Christ, you enter into his reality. You enter into his kingdom and to his rule. 
where there's redemption and there's forgiveness. And so when you belong to Christ, you get caught up in that cosmic story, what God is doing. 